Welcome to Grace Bible Church. If you're a visitor, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm now the college pastor at our Southwood campus. For a long time, I was the youth pastor here at this campus, and this summer I've just transitioned over to the Southwood campus. Uh, Just a little plug, Thomas Scythe will be the new director of youth ministry here, so if you get a chance to welcome him and his lovely wife Emily here uh, strongly, you guys have loved me for such a long time, and and we're just a warm embrace in all of my time here at the Anderson campus, Um, and uh, Southwood's got a lot to to jump into, you know, because you guys love me so well. Um, but I would just love it if you guys would extend that same graciousness to, to Thomas and his wife when they come here as well. All right, enough plugs. Okay. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We're going to be talking about angels. I know you've been wanting that series this summer, and we got it this morning. And uh, we're continuing our study in theology. And uh, most of the time when we've been going through theological um, ideas and topics, we jump all over the place in the Bible. But uh, I really wanted to work hard to, to land us in one particular text. So if you just flip to Ephesians 6, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time here this morning. I'm going to read it for us, verses 10 through 20, and then we will dive in. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Paul says this, Finally, After everything I just said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Well, we are jumping in to angels And if I was to throw out the idea of spiritual forces in the world, spiritual beings that exist in the world, um, there's images that immediately come to your mind. And in our modern world, our modern uh, secular ideology, the way that we think about cosmic forces of darkness are probably something like this, right? Terrifying angels, terrifying little devils, right? That sit on your little shoulders and kind of lead you one way or the other. See, if I was to throw out the idea, and if you were to go to work tomorrow, it's like, hey, we, what'd you talk about at church? Uh, spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. You would, you, they would look at you like, oh, cool church, not visiting that one, right? Because in our modern day and age, and in the way that we think about spiritual ideas, we think of them as a cosmic joke, right? And as soon as you throw the idea of spiritual world out there, all of a sudden you just got moved over to the, uh, the place of crazy town in everyone's mind, But if you were to take a moment and just look at modern art, you might be surprised at what you see there. 
we may not be as far from spiritual realities as you might think. Now, I say modern art. Some of you aren't art lovers, but you are movie lovers. And it's my contention that this, that movies are the place that employ um, the greatest artists that our nation produces. From, from screenwriters to uh, composers of music to, to artists, movies are the place where they bring all those people together in, in an amazing, amazing uh, process to produce these amazing movies. And if you were to just look at the most popular movies uh, of 2016, they would look something like this. One through eight, we got Finding Dory, Captain America, Civil War, Deadpool, Jungle Book, Zootopia, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, The Secret Life of Pets, and X-Men Apocalypse. And now as soon as I throw those movies to you, I would say this. Do they look realistic? No. Three of them are cartoons, right? And four of them are based on comic heroes. Our secular ideology, hey, we're well beyond spiritual forces of good and bad, all those different things. We're so far removed from that. But just look at our movies. What do we watch? What do we engage in? I'll just take three of those for a second. Three of the comic heroes. Movies that have made billions of dollars across our nation alone. And if you look at every one of these movies, Captain America, Batman, Superman, X-Men Apocalypse, what theme do you see in those movies? There's cosmic evil versus supernatural good. You have cosmic villains against supernatural heroes that are looking to get together to defeat them. And if you just take a moment and look at that art, you would say, man, it's interesting that we haven't seemed to escape those spiritual themes but not just in our modern movie. Look at our movies. Look at our modern fiction. And if you've been following modern fiction, in particular what's captured the hearts and minds of our teen girls over the past, I don't know, five or six years. Um, I was in youth ministry, so I have been. Uh, you would see very popular movies such as this. this uh, the movie Allegiant was the latest in the Divergent series. And it's a, the Virgin series was just the latest in a long re, uh, string of books, popular fiction, that captured the hearts and minds of our teens. And they all kind of circled around the same storyline. That was basically this, that you had a group of people that were living in, a, in an oppressed place. And they were being controlled by some unknown, outside, oppressive enemy. And my wife and I actually went and saw Allegiant uh, together. And the story, the movie was, you know, okay, but... But the storyline was really interesting because what happened is, is you basically have these group of people and they're divided into factions in this walled city and they're competing against one another for, for leadership in their little walled city. And there came a moment when Triss escaped the city and they get to a new group of people and they think that once they reach this new group of people, um, th- they'll save them, they'll, they'll teach them how to how to go back to their world and make it better. And they go to this guy and what they realize is that there's something more sinister going on. In fact, they find that this guy had actually created this world. And as a result, they were just in the midst of a cosmic joke. They go and visit another, another government. They talk, they talk about what's going on in this little world and, and they're going to defund this little project that this guy has running and what you see is you open up the levels of the onion that each new level shows more sinister evil at play there's something more diabolical pulling at the strings and I look at those realities and I say you know what that's what the bible has been screaming at us for centuries 
that we don't live in a world of only what we see. There's a spiritual reality. There's a cosmic villain in the mix. And there's also an oppressive regime that he is running. They call him the the prince of the power of the air. He is alive and well in our world. And see, we've got to get our minds around this because if we don't know what's really going on, we're not going to respond in the right way. And so this morning, I really want to look at three pieces about the reality of of spiritual forces in our world. And the first one is this, that we are in the midst of a spiritual world. Secondly, that we are in the midst of a spiritual war. And lastly, so we must engage in a spiritual fight. First, simply to show that we are in the midst of a spiritual world. In Ephesians chapter six, verse 10 and 11, you see it at the very beginning. He says this, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And suddenly you see the two main characters in this spiritual world. There's God and there's Satan. Two spiritual forces. And, and with God, there's, a, there's spiritual uh, partners that he has within it. And we call them angels. And as soon as I say that, angels, come on, Kevin, angels? I mean, aren't angels basically Bible fairies? You know, they kind of flitter around and, and help people every now and then. And, and Kevin, seriously, I mean, you're going on this track, but, but aren't, aren't spiritual beings used to explain what science has already explained for us? I mean, back then they needed these little Bible fairies to kind of help things, but we know what causes sickness and disease. They're not spirits. They're just part of our DNA. In fact, one um, article from Huffington Post actually describes this view very clearly. The author Richard Koch says it this way, 500 years ago, witches were drowned because that it was thought that they were possessed by the devil. 2,000 years ago, Christians and pagans alike believed that the world above and below the earth was stuffed full of spiritual principalities and powers. The sky was thick with unseen angels, good and evil. So there must have been very busy and efficient air traffic controllers. Now only backward tribes and a few religious extremists believe in the existence of evil or good spirits. And a good job too. Think about all the witches in the Crusades. As you read that, you go, okay, you're kind of capturing what our modern people think. And as a Christian who believes in this, you may be going, okay, does everyone disagree with the reality of the spiritual world? There was a study done um, a couple years ago, and it's been quoted by everyone. It's by Pew Research studying millennials. And there was this growth of nuns in the millennial generation, not Catholic nuns, but those with no religious affiliation. And there's this huge spike in the number of people that basically checked none in the box. I have no religious affiliation. But in that same article, you actually might be surprised by the results. Although they have, the millennials, generally speaking, have, have moved away from identifying with a particular church, they haven't dislodged the deep spiritual beliefs from them. In fact, from the same article, it says this about the millennials. On some traditional measures of religious belief, the differences between millennials and older Americans is not that large. For instance, when it comes to views on the afterlife, two-thirds of millennials believe in, in heaven compared to roughly three quarters of the baby boomers and members of the silent generation. And 56% of millennials believe in the concept of hell similar to older age cohorts. 
You see, as you look at what our people actually believe, they do believe in a spiritual heaven. Majority of them do believe in a spiritual hell. See, our world hasn't been able to dislodge this this truth that there is actually a spiritual world going on. And so in in this first section, I just want to focus on the good part, the spiritual good part that exists in the world. And those are angels. I want to give you five pieces about angels, who they are and what they do. And you might be surprised by this. In scripture, angels are, are called messengers. The word angel in Hebrew malak basically just means messenger or angelos in, in, uh, in Greek, which I don't speak well, uh, also means messenger. And the first thing we see about angels is this, that they are created spiritual beings. Colossians 1, 16 says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Right there you see that every spiritual being was created by Jesus in particular. It says right there, visible and invisible. Secondly, angels are innumerable. In two references in Hebrews chapter 12 and in Revelation 5, they both describe the angels as, as being in myriads. There's so many of them that, that exist in the, in the heavenly places Thirdly, angels do not marry. I know some of you have been holding out for that moment when you can marry that angel. Some of you think you married an angel, but you didn't. Um, They're a person. Matthew 22, verse 30 says this, uh, that angels uh, neither marry nor are given in marriage. So it's from the the mouth of Jesus himself. Fourthly, angels have, have rank. Angels have rank. I'm sorry, number four didn't get in there. Angels have rank. And there's only two angels in particular that are actually described by rank. One of them is is Michael and the other one is Gabriel. Gabriel shows up in Daniel chapter 21 and Luke chapter uh, 1. But Michael shows up in Daniel chapter 12. And Michael is called the archangel. And he he is one that is powerful. And he is one that is used to, basically used to help Daniel and fight, um, and fight the enemy. And then you see Gabriel. Gabriel also shows up in, um, in Daniel chapter 9. And what's so interesting about, about Gabriel in particular is that in Luke chapter 1 where he shows up, he, he pops into the, the home of a small little peasant girl named Mary and tells her, hey, you're going to carry the Son of God. See, Gabriel is, is one of the, the highest messengers of God. He also shows up in, in, front of the, uh, in front of the shepherds when they're in the wilderness. But lastly, fourthly, or fifthly, angels help humans. Hebrews chapter one says this, are they, that's angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Angels are sent to help humans. And you see this all across the Bible. In fact, if you look at Lot in, in, the, uh, in the book of Genesis, you see that Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah and angels come in and rip him out and rescue him from the destruction that's gonna come. You see this with Elijah. Elisha is tired and exhausted in the wilderness and angels come and literally bring him food and water to drink. You see this also in Elisha, his follower. There's a moment when Elisha is, is being attacked by an enemy army and he's there with his servant and his servant is freaking out. And Elijah prays, Lord, open his eyes. And suddenly the skies open up and you see the angel armies surrounding them protecting them. 
And when it comes to the life of Jesus, the presence of angels explodes. They're announcing his birth. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, they're there ministering after he's tempted by Satan. They're at his, his burial when he's by the tomb. And they're there at his ascension when the disciples are going, where is he going? They're going, hey, get on mission. See, at every moment in Jesus' life, you see the reality of spiritual forces present and active around his life. But not just good forces. You also see evil forces. In fact, everywhere Jesus goes, it feels like a spiritual battle. There's some being that pops up and, and, and talks to him or, is, or, is, or opposing him. See, all you have to do is look at the life of Jesus and you see that there is a spiritual war going on in this world. In fact, C.S. Lewis um, was an Oxford professor. He wasn't a believer for most of his life. And he started reading the Bible on his own and, 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 and trying to figure out what, what these Christian things were about. And as he's reading, he's, he writes in Mere Christianity some of his reflections. And he says this, One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who held the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he first created and went wrong. Charles Baudelaire, a French poet, writes this, the finest trick is to persuade you that the devil does not exist. The devil's finest trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. You see, we live in a spiritual world, but we are also in the midst of a spiritual war. Ephesians 6.12 says it, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present Darkness and those spiritual forces are led by a single being, Satan. And Satan, as, as you look at him through scripture, you see that he was an angel. He was created good. In fact, he was one of the most glorious of angels. If you were to read Ezekiel chapter 28, you would see that he's described as an anointed cherub. But he fell. And how did he fall? Pride. He says that he looked to his beauty and elevated himself. He tried to be as God and therefore he was cast down. He's a fallen angel. And Satan also has a crew that runs around with him. They're called demons. Demons are fallen angels. If you were to read 2 Peter 2, 4 or Jude 6, you would see the description of of their fall. And what do they do? Or if you were to look at the pages of scripture, you would see that they make some mute. They bring disease to others and they ravage the life of one man. In fact, the, one, the demons that are possessing him were so many that they're called legion. There's so many of them and Jesus cast the demons out into pigs, but they possess and control and ruin the life of a man. And one of the questions I've gotten uh, frequently is this, can, can demons possess a Christian? Well, preeminent theologian named Charles Ryrie gives a excellent definition towards possession and and how they influence even a Christian when he says this, a demon can reside in a person, can exert direct control and influence over that person with certain derangement of mind and or body. Demon possession is to be distinguished from demonic influence or demon activity in relation to a person. 
the work of the demon in the latter is from the outside, whereas demon possession is from within. By this definition, a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon since he is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. However, a believer can be the target of demonic activity to such an extent that he may give the appearance of demon possession. So a demon cannot possess a Christian, but it can heavily influence them. So demons, demons are his crew, but what is Satan's strategy? Throughout time, this is what Satan does, and he has the same strategy every single time. In fact, it uses the words uh, in, in my translation as, as schemes. It's like plays that he calls. It's routes that he runs. It's the way that he gets into the mind and heart of both believers and unbelievers. And he does the same kind of path almost every time. In fact, you see it perfectly play out in Genesis chapter 3. He does this. He questions the goodness of God. He tempts us to sin. And then he condemns you when you fall. First of this, he questions the goodness of God. And you see this play out with Eve. He walks over to her and he goes, hey, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And she says, no, no, we, we can eat from some, just, just not that one. He goes, oh, okay. Because God knows what's going to happen when you eat it. You're going to be as God, knowing good and evil. I mean, you're going to be raised to the standard of God. See where he's drawn you? And then when they fall, they feel condemned. The movie that plays this out perfectly uh, is a movie that I'm reliving with my children. I've got four young kids, six to eight months, and uh, we've been reliving the world of Lion King. Fans? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, yes that's what I'm talking This is your participation moment right here. And we've been reliving it together as a family, which has been so fun, but, but there's one diabolical character in the mix, and his name is Scar, right? He's Mufasa's uncle, Simba's uh, Mephasa's brother, Simba's uncle. And there's a moment in the movie where Simba goes kind of trotting along and he meets his uncle Scar. He says, hey, Uncle Scar, what are you doing? And Scar's like, yeah, you know, I'm just kind of hanging out here with my hyenas. Um, <laughs> what are you doing, little Simba? And he's like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of bumming around. And, and Scar, go, or, yeah, Scar goes, hey, why don't, why don't you go over and venture into the elephant burial ground? There's some fun stuff over there. But only the bravest ones go. And Simba's like, well, I'm brave. I'm going to do it. And he goes over there and he's immediately encountered by danger. And his father swoops in and saves him. And they have a conversation. And he feels horrible for disobeying his dad. And then later on, Scar does the same thing. He brings Simba over and he sits him in the middle of this huge valley, setting him up for disaster. He goes and warns his dad. A stampede comes. Mufasa runs to save his son. And in the process, dies. And then Simba slinks his way back over to Scar. And Scar says, man, I I can't believe you you caused the death of your father. I can't believe you disobeyed your father. You better run. And as you look at that storyline play out, you can look at Simba and go like, you're so dumb, little, little lion. Can't you see that he's evil? Like, can't you see he's got dark mane? You know that he's gonna lead you in a bad direction. Why can't you see where he's leading you? But Satan's schemes are so crafty. He will question the goodness of God. He'll tempt you to the edge of the disaster. And when you fall, he'll condemn you. And you see this play across our world in politics. You see, our world 
tempts us to the edge of disaster when it comes to our sexuality. They say, be liberated, be free, sleep with whoever you want, go whatever direction you want. And as soon as our political leaders engage, we condemn. We see this financially. Go, spend your money, it's good for you. And as soon as you make the mistake, you go to the edge of disaster and fall. The world swoops in with condemnation and there's a reason for that. Because Satan's called the prince of the power of the air. This is his world system. He tempts you to the edge. And when you fall, he's there to kick you when you're down. That's how our world works. That's how Satan works. And the key is to know what gets you. Tim Keller has an amazing sermon on on spiritual warfare in particular in this text. And he describes it like this. That the way Satan speaks to you is like opening up a piano. Now, if you were to open up the the top of this piano, which I'm not, and you were to sing in, certain strings would vibrate. Assuming you have tone or tonal quality and can sing at all, those those particular strings would vibrate. He says, here's what Satan's like. Satan can't make a, a good person bad, but he can make a flawed person worse. So he opens up and he knows what strings vibrate for you. He knows what gets you going. And so if lust is your thing, he'll speak lust into you. If you get angry quickly, he'll speak anger into you. If if you're jealous of folks, he'll speak jealous thoughts into you. He knows what gets your strings going, and he'll start speaking those words into you. And soon he shows you the bait and he hides the hook. Soon you fall, and you get condemned when you fall. And Satan has been using the same strategy for centuries. He knows the strings that get you moving. Because we live in a spiritual world, because we're in the midst of a spiritual war, we must lastly engage in a spiritual fight. In fact, the way that this fight is described is is extremely close and personal. In fact, if you look at the the verse uh, 6... Ephesians 6.12, he says this. Verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities of this, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And he says, he uses the word wrestle. Now the word wrestle in in the Greek language is this, to describe Greco-Roman wrestling. Close quarters, hand-to-hand combat. What's the point? He's telling you this. This war is personal. It's right in your grill. Satan knows the things that get you moving. It's personal. Secondly, he says, we wrestle. This war isn't optional. Every one of us is in the midst of this. And thirdly, he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. But this, this war is spiritual. But it does have physical counterparts. We do have physical opposition within this, but it comes from another place. It's spiritual. So the simple question to close is this, how do we fight? How do we fight? Well, he answers the question at the very beginning of this section when Paul says, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. The first thing we must do is to be strong in him. What's so crazy about this, this whole section is that he describes God as the one who, who we should be strong in and God is the one who arms us. Because the truth is this, the battle is already won. 
The war has already been won by Christ. In fact, if you were to jump over to Colossians chapter 2, it says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. You see, the war has already been won by Christ. And then Paul goes on to describe this outfit to be outfitted in. And it's basically armor. You got a helmet, you got a shield, you got a breastplate, you got a belt of truth, you got gospel shoes, which seems sweet. And, and if you look at those different things to be outfitted with, uh, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, he goes, you know, it seems kind of un- impractical. Like, how do I put that on? Like, I can't leave the house without the shield of faith. My little kid made it, but it says faith and it's a shield, you know? We got sweet shoes. I don't know, they're gospel shoes. I don't know. Like, like how do you put it on? And many commentators in particular, they debate on what Paul is talking to. I mean, he's in prison at this moment. So is he kind of looking over at a Roman soldier and it's like, faith's kind of like a helmet of salvation. You know, like how are we even getting this armament? But what Paul actually has in his mind isn't the Roman soldier, it's Christ. And if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 59, you would see a very similar description of the Messiah that would come. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, it says this, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation for his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. If you were to read that section from Isaiah, he's talking about the Messiah. Jesus who would come robed in armor to fight for us. You see, this is God's armor. If you want to have this armor, you have to be in Christ. In fact, Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 15 to his disciples. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. The start of the fight is to first be in Christ. That means you put your faith wholly and solely in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We've all blown it. We've all been susceptible to the wiles of the enemy. But if you put your faith in him, you are wiped clean, fully forgiven. Are you in him? Secondly, know where you're tempted. Know where you're tempted. What things does Satan use to get you? I think one of the best things you can do at this point in your life is to this, is to simply be this, a student of yourself. When are you likely to fall? Is it when you're home alone? Is it after a long, stressful week at work? Is it when you're hanging around certain people and you know it's going to come up? Is it when you go to certain places? When are you likely to fall? Be in him. Know what Satan uses to get you. Number three, to use us. See, in 1 Peter, Peter says this, that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour You ever watched a a lion go after its prey? One of my favorite YouTube videos plays this out, right? So I I love it because it's it's basically a guy with a little hand cam looking over an African safari. And you can tell he's there like his family and kids. 
And he's watching like this little water buffalo drink water from, from a little pond. They're like, oh, look, it's so cute. We're in the wilderness. You know, you can, he's living it out. And then suddenly an alligator pops out of the water and chomps on the leg of this baby water buffalo. Oh, no. And it's kind of like a train wreck. You got to keep watching, see what happens, even though you're like, oh, it's horrible, you know. And then you see the camera pan over and this pride of lions comes after the weak limping victim and they jump on top of the water buffalo. And at that moment, the people in the camera are like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And I'm like, keep playing it. I want to see what happens. <laughs> and they're terrified because they have no response. And then suddenly, it's like the music changes and they pan over to this herd of water buffalo led by one, which I personally think was the mama, right? And they come there and that mama comes around and sees that line and just manhandles them with her horns, throws them off, and then the rest of them move in. The alligator goes, I don't want any part of this, right? And lets go and swims off. And the little baby goes free with the crew. And I'm like, that's it. That's the Christian life, right? You need friends, preferably ones with horns, you know? (laughs) Did you notice all the words that he uses in this text? He says, hey, we fight. We need to be together. We can stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because you're not meant to fight alone. You're meant to fight with us. And when Satan sees you alone, you are ripe for attack. So So many times in my life, when I just sit with my own thoughts about me, when I sit with my own thoughts about my mistakes, when I sit with my own thoughts and play out the reel of my failed day or my failed week or my failed month or all the people I let down in my life, and I just sit there and let that reel play in my mind, I don't come up with the right thoughts and I don't come up with the right response. See, the community of believers is meant to be here to help you stand when you struggle. You can't fight this alone. I've got great friends around me that I can say, hey, I'm thinking these things. And they can look at me and go, no, Kevin, you're stupid. Mm -mm. That's not true. That's not true. And I'm so thankful that I have people that love me enough to speak the truth in love. I would strongly encourage you you as we finish here that you step through those doors and get connected with people that can change your life and help you stand when you struggle. And lastly, number four, you look to the author. Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, focus your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The last thing we do is we're strong in him. We know where we get stuck. We know we need a community surrounding us and we look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I was listening to Tony, um, Tony Evans preach this topic and this sermon um, in, in preparation for this. And he had a phenomenal illustration to close his sermon that I could never reproduce, but I thought was the perfect picture to focus your eyes on him. And he talked about the 1996 Olympics. The Olympics have started up this year. And 1996 was probably the first real Olympics that I watched. And there was one particular athlete that stole the show. It was a little teenage gymnast named Carrie Strug. She was, uh, she was competing with the gymnastics team, the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team, and they were in the team competition. And as it came to the end of the team competition, it was her responsibility to score in the vault in order to put the U.S. team in the win. 
And so she goes for her first fall. She, she runs, does her flips, does her thing, and lands terribly on her ankle, sprains it terribly, and immediately falls to the ground and gets a low score. And you see the, the tears just kind of flooding her eyes. And you see this across the crowd, this collective, ah, oh, because they just watch a girl lose, fail at her dreams. And there, everyone's asking, what's going to happen? And you see her coach on the side, Bella Caroli, who had coached so many great Olympians in the past. And he says, Carrie, look at me. He's got like a Russian accent. I don't know what it is, Russian. Look at me, Carrie. And you see her through the tears, look up at her coach. Don't think about the pain, Carrie. Look at me. Get up. She kind of stumbles to her feet. I mean, she can't even stand, much less walk. Walk to the runway. She, she walks over to the side. He says, look at the vault. Focus on the vault. Run. And she takes off running down the vault, barely able to go. Does her deal. Lands on two feet. Stands on one. Throws her arms into the air. Gets her score and falls to the ground. The whole crowd erupts. Everyone screaming, crying. They just watched this girl stand in the midst of an incredible struggle because she focused on her coach who would carry her through. I don't know what you're going to face this year. I don't know what you're going to face this week. But some of you feel maimed. Some of you feel like you've taken some spiritual hits. Some of you feel like you can't stand on your own. But I'll tell you what, if you look to the author and you look to us, we will help carry you through. We're in the midst of a spiritual world. We're in the midst of a spiritual war. Together, we can stand under Christ and engage in the spiritual fight. This morning, we have an amazing opportunity to celebrate communion. The, The moment when Jesus laid down his life and he was sitting with his disciples and and set up the moment and prayed for his disciples as they would engage in their leg of the journey. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I do know that you are in the midst of a spiritual war. And I don't know how you're feeling this morning, but I know some of us feel a little broken, a little beaten down. So my prayer for right now, I'd just love for you to prepare your hearts If there's sin you need to confess, confess your sin. If there's things in your life that I want to to start putting those pieces in my life, why don't don't you just take a mental note or even even jot them down. But before we take communion, I ask that you just prepare your hearts for what God would want to do in this moment. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he's at dinner with with his disciples. He took the loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, do this. In remembrance of me, let's take the bread together. Then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood that has been shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life for us. And as you prayed for your disciples, you're not going to take them out of the world, but you're going to leave them in the world. And that you prayed for them to protect them from the evil one. 
And Lord, we are in the midst of that place where we need your protection. We need your hand. So I pray that you would be on us. You would help us to walk humbly before our God. And we would spotlight the greatness of Jesus, you who saved us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son and you are with us. Lord, I pray for, for, for us as we go from here that we'd be awakened to the reality of the spiritual world, but we would engage in the spiritual fight by the community of the fellow believers alongside of us. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great Sunday.